it was likely that the man they called the Donvale Rapist would strike repeatedly until he was caught. He discovered that the Donvale Rapist from the 70s was one of the most wanted killers in Australian history. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. Today, we move towards the end of our serial of my first book, Cuckoo, which starts with the murder of two teenagers in Shepparton in 1966 and takes us through to a series of rapes in suburban Melbourne in the 70s and brings us to the 1980s, which is when the investigation begins in earnest. Every office has its enthusiasts, those who never watch the clock, but if their eyes happen to catch it are surprised to see that the time has gone so quickly. Tradition has it that the Victoria Police Fingerprint Bureau, because of the specialised skills and concentration the work demands, attracts the diligent and self-motivated. Of the 70 or so people working at the Bureau in 1982, Sergeant Andrew Wall, in the eyes of his superiors and his peers, was one of the best. Not just dedicated, but with an extra dimension of talent a blend of eyesight, memory and instinct, which cannot be taught, though it might well be sharpened by practice. It was typical of Andy Wall that in late June 1982, he approached the Bureau's commanding officer, Chief Inspector Brian Norton, with an idea to improve the system. A year earlier, Norton had quietly ordered a review of unidentified fingerprints detected at the most serious unsolved crimes in the previous 20 years. It was an attempt to prevent important prints from slipping into limbo in the face of the rising tide of work handled by the Bureau. Andy Wall's suggestion, an extension of Norton's idea, was simple enough to put together photographs of a hard core of unidentified prints linked with serious unsolved cases. Norton was enthusiastic So Wall and other officers started collecting prints they considered the most notorious and stuck them to a big sheet of cardboard. The board was displayed prominently so that every member of the Bureau would memorise the prints by seeing them every day. Of the five sets, two were especially significant. One, from a case well known to the public, was a faint print found at the scene of the Easy Street murders in Collingwood. 1977. That print would remain unmatched and the case unsolved for the rest of Brian Norton's life. But the second set of prints was to prove a different story. It had been found on a flywire screen at a house in Donvale where a woman had been tied up and assaulted in 1971. That is the woman that we called Suzanne in our podcast. But it was not that crime alone which had excited attention. The prints had been matched with others left at a rape scene in Greensboro in 1975 and a third at Chelsea Heights in 1977. In each case, the description of the offender and his methods had convinced detectives that he was responsible for many other rapes reported in those suburbs over several years. Although the public knew little of the offender, He loomed large in the minds of the police because it was likely that the man they called the Donvale Rapist would strike repeatedly 
until he was caught. All of this was at the back of Andy Wall's mind when he taped a blown-up photograph of one of the rapist's prints to the centre of his brainchild, the top five board. To his expert eye, the grey smudge in the photograph was instantly recognisable. It was the print of an index finger selected for the ease with which an expert could pick out its small count loop. Prints of the rapist's other fingers were not on the board. They were arranged as a composite set and kept on file for comparison against full sets of prints. They were not as clear as the index print and required study to impress their unique peculiarities in the memories of the Bureau staff. The quiet young policeman was satisfied that the board was worthwhile, but he didn't know that its value would be proved within two weeks, nor that he would be the one to do it. It was not, Andy Wall often said later, anything extraordinary. Comparing and matching fingerprints, he would point out, was what he'd done every working day of his seven years at the Bureau. July 12, 1982, started routinely in the old Bureau office at Russell Street. There was the usual backlog of prints taken from crime scenes overnight and from offenders lodged at the City Watch House. These had to be processed, checked against known offenders' prints, and if not matched, against unidentified prints from other crime scenes. Despite the classification of fingerprints into groups according to the differences in loops, walls and arches, automatically eliminating thousands of those on file, each new print still had to be checked against thousands of others stored in the Bureau's cabinet full of drawers. It was to a particular drawer that Andy Wall went in the afternoon of July the 12th, intent on putting in an hour reviewing old prints. At the front of the drawer, in a tattered envelope, was a collection of developed prints photographed at the scenes of unsolved major crimes. At Chief Inspector Norton's suggestion, he was going to sift through old murder cases for likely further candidates for the top five board. Wall sat at his desk and shuffled methodically through the pack. An old dog-eared photograph caught his eye. It was of a right hand, of which only two fingerprints were decipherable. They looked like the index and middle fingers, but it was possible they were middle and ring finger. He sensed something familiar about them. The feeling grew stronger. Neither of the prints in front of him matched the rapist's index fingerprint, which he had stuck to the top five board a fortnight before. But some instinct told him that they came from the same hand. Wall flicked through the file of composite prints and fished out the Donvale rapist set, made up from various prints taken from three suburban houses over six years. And there was the answer to the riddle. The old murder prints in the dog-eared photograph matched two of the fingers in the composite set, not as seemed likely the index and middle fingers, but the middle and ring fingers. It was a tiny fact, but it might have been enough to confuse anybody who had reviewed the murder prints in previous years. It took something close to intuition on Andy Wall's part to get it right. Andy Wall knew he had a perfect match. What he didn't know until he approached one of the Bureau veterans to ask him to double-check the comparison 
was the significance of his find. Senior Sergeant Bob Hadfield, who'd worked in the Bureau since 1962, knew exactly what he was looking at. He didn't have to check the ID number on the back of the old picture to know the prints were those found on Gary Haywood's FJ Holden at Shepparton, a fact kept secret for the previous 16 years. Hadfield and his contemporaries had pored over copies of that photograph dozens of times in the years immediately after the murders, and the patterns of the two hazy prints were engraved in his memory. Abina Medill and Gary Haywood, said Hadfield, nodding his head in wonder. It had been one of the biggest cases of his 30-year career. Those names meant nothing to Andy Wall. He'd migrated from England with his parents when he was 13, and so hadn't grown up knowing anything about the famous Shepparton case. It wasn't until Hadfield explained the history of the case to him that the young policeman realised the gravity of the situation. He discovered that the Donvale rapist from the 70s was one of the most wanted killers in Australian history. And he was still active. Bob Hadfield reached for the telephone. Long story short, the breakthrough with the fingerprints meant that the police now knew that the Donvale rapist was also the Shepparton killer. At least they had a better idea who they were looking for. At least they knew which prints they were looking for. But it didn't get them yet any closer to the offender himself. Senior police's reaction to Andrew Wall's extraordinary fingerprint discovery was naturally enough to keep it secret. There was no point flagging to the crook that they knew more about him than he knew they knew. And um, they wanted to get a task force underway and start looking for him before he realised that the balloon had gone up. The new inquiry officially began in August 1982. And a group or a task force of police centred in Shepparton had the job. Two of them were Dennis Hanna and Ken Mansell, who had been called to that rape at Donvale back in 1971. They now were at Shepparton and took a great interest in the case because of the Shepparton connection with the Medill Haywood murders. And they knew that if they could track the rapist, they'd get the murderer. A troubled young woman, her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. But from the start, red herrings were a problem. One of the first and worst red herrings was a suggestion by possibly only one victim that this offender had a faint Scottish or English accent. Now, there was no reason not to believe the witness, but 
it becomes part of what the police are looking for and so they naturally start to look towards people who might have a Scottish or English accent, which is a red herring that could take them well off the track. Investigation of the Scottish connection theory got stronger. Dennis Hanna was himself a product of the Big Brother scheme, which had brought out young men from the British Isles back in the 50s. And he'd come out to Australia under that scheme and had started work here and and become a policeman. And so he was quite knowledgeable about that system. And he knew that the Durrangal prison farm between Murchison and Datura had previously been a Presbyterian hostel where British boys had once been housed. A series of calls led to a former official who had records showing that Scottish orphans brought to Australia had stayed at the hostel between 1959 and 1965 before making their way into the community, mostly around Shepparton. It fell into place so neatly. It was a very seductive theory because here you had a reservoir of Scottish youths, many of them hardened, and some probably disturbed as a result of their fractured lives, all of them familiar with the district where the bodies were found, and all the right age to attend a rock concert in 1966. The easy part was to find out who they were. The hostel records gave the names and dates of birth of 93 Durrangal old boys and their last known addresses. Then came the time-consuming part, tracking them down and fingerprinting them. It took months. Despite the publicity it attracted later, the idea that the attacker, this is the Donvale rapist, had a distinctive odour or stink was based on evidence only slightly stronger than that suggesting that he had a Scottish accent. Of the 12 victims known early in the investigation, only four reported that the attacker had an odour. Of these, One thought it was like cigar smoke, another that it was possibly bitumen or diesel, one that it was body odour, and another simply that it was a strong smell, which he couldn't identify or describe. Months later, only one other victim was located who recalled that the attacker had a smell, which she likened to stale cigarette smoke. So much for the odour. Hannah and Lucas identified trays which were less unusual but were ultimately to prove more accurate. Eight women reported that the man was barefoot and it could be guessed that the other four would not have been sure if he was wearing shoes or not. Nine were menaced with a knife, all but one with a long-bladed butcher's knife. Ten of the victims were young married women whose husbands were out that night. The most Chilling statistic of all, 11 of the women had small children in the house, usually in bed with them. What he did in effect, Dennis Hanna would often say, eyes narrowed with contempt, was to take the children hostage. There had been the implicit threat that the man would harm the children if he met any resistance. Women who alone might have screamed for help or try to fight off an attacker, would submit to anything to protect their children. And now we get to the part where we have the relationship between the police and the media. It's a symbiotic relationship. Each side uses the other 
to further their own ends, sometimes with good results, sometimes not. Back in this era, in the early 80s, a man called Steve Obor was a crime reporter, a seasoned tabloid newspaper man who moved sure-footedly in the no-man's land between law enforcers and law breakers. Steve Obar was an American by birth, but he'd come to Australia as a young man. The legend has it he was a draft dodger from the Vietnam War, which may or may not be true, but he certainly lived and worked in Melbourne newspapers for many years and was a very popular and very skilled reporter. At the time we're talking about, 1982, Obar worked for the Sunday Press, a tabloid Sunday newspaper which was a forerunner of the Sunday papers that we now know in Victoria. Obar knew he had to work harder than the daily newspaper guys because they had good working relationships with the senior police and the crime squad detectives. And so Obar worked hard to cultivate certain sources. He was at a function in early November 1982 when he heard a discreet word passed from a senior policeman to another reporter. The word was Shepparton. And although Obar came from America, he had read and written enough about the Medill Haywood murders in his 10 years in Australia to make the connection. But what was new about the case that had the favoured few at Russell Street swapping knowing looks? The question worried Obar. He tried to bluff it out of the cigar-smoking CIB boss everyone called Fat Harry. But Harry, who could usually be relied on to confirm a story if a reporter had heard it elsewhere, wasn't buying any of Obar's nonchalant queries. He had plans of his own, and they didn't include handing over one of the best crime stories in 20 years to one weekly paper that had never done him any favours. When Harry let the story go, it would run in all the dailies and every television and radio station. Harry's real name, of course, was Superintendent Phil Bennett. Obar knew that this was the reality of the public relations game, but it didn't help him. He cast around for an answer. He decided to try the New South Wales Police in case the story had travelled north. Obar had once worked on the Sydney Sun, and he remembered a homicide detective in the Harbour City who knew most things. He rang him. Two minutes later, he got what he wanted. His contact told him that a few months earlier, two Victorian fingerprint men had flown to Sydney at short notice and spent a week searching the records. They were trying to match prints which had something to do with the Shepparton murders. Not long afterwards, Victorian homicide detectives had arrived to print a rape suspect they thought might be the Shepparton killer. The details were thin, but Obar was happy. He knew he had enough cards in his hand to bluff with. He spent most of the day on the telephone and by afternoon had the story stitched up. He wrote it next day, ready to go to press that night. It was Saturday, November the 13th. Lucky for him. Unlucky for the investigating police. Next day, the headline screamed from the posters outside every milk bar and newsagent. Killer print clue. And on the front page of the paper, the story unfolded in racy prose. The first paragraph said the police were on the brink of solving a gruesome double murder. 
The second paragraph said police believed they had linked a rapist with the Shepparton killings. The next paragraph really upset the investigating police. The dramatic breakthrough came as the rapist's fingerprints were matched with those taken from the scene of the grisly murder that shocked the nation, the story read. Obar had a bigger story than he realised. Unwittingly, he had blown a secret that had been kept for 16 years, the fact that fingerprints had been found on Gary Haywood's car. It was a secret that a previous generation of police had entrusted to a previous generation of reporters, and one which Obar would have kept without harming his exclusive, if someone had only told him. The public relations strategy had been too clever by half, but it was too late for recriminations. The killer, if he read the Sunday press, now knew as much as the police. The investigation was well underway, but it had the red herring problem. First of all, the police had got a sculptor to make up a bust of a composite description of the offender. Now, the detectives believed it was very realistic, that it looked very similar to the offender. However, it took into account all the varying descriptions from all the witnesses, and so it didn't look like any one person. It certainly didn't look that much like the man they were actually pursuing. Some said it looked a little too much like Dennis Hanna, the policeman leading the investigators at Shepparton. Second, there was the trouble over the smell. Newspapers were reporting that several victims had reported a strong odour but could not identify it. Well, this was true up to a point, but only up to a point. But the ambiguity of the description meant that naturally reporters and readers would seize on it. Third, there was the furphy of the accent. It was said that the man's speech was soft and slow and he had a cultured Scottish or Northern English accent. That was the line published in the newspapers. Because of their novelty value, the bust, the accent and the odour started to overshadow the more accurate clues, which were the fact that he was nearly always barefoot and carried a long butcher's knife. Through no fault of the investigators, the subtle process of transforming unchallenged assumptions into unquestioned facts had begun. The problem with this was it opened the floodgates to thousands of supposed leads and supposed tip-offs. The police could hardly ignore all these tip-offs and leads in case one of them was the right one. But the problem was there were so many that there was no chance of sifting through them and working out which ones were worth chasing which ones weren't. The investigators drowned in the overreaction to the appeal to the public. In 48 hours after the press conference they'd called, there were more than 800 phone calls filling 60 pages in a file. There were hundreds more calls over the following weeks. Many were ridiculous, but the trouble was hundreds of them were not necessarily ridiculous. And that was the trouble. One thing led to another, and within a week or two, the Sunday Press had another go at keeping its exclusive story alive. And the chief sub-editor, a great man called Lyle Corliss, was doodling with his layout 
on a Saturday night looking for a headline about the latest developments in the case, which would fit into a tight count using big headline type. And he wondered what to use. One sub-editor suggested the name Pongo, but Corliss rejected it. It sounded sort of too much like a circus clown. Obar came closer with Mr. Smelly. Corliss thought about it for a moment and then wrote on his blotter, Mr. Stinky gets top billing. He counted the letters. It fitted the space beautifully. Two days later, the Australian newspaper used Mr. Stinky in a headline. Other papers soon followed suit and the name stuck. And the more that people read about Mr. Stinky, the more it reinforced one of three basic ideas implanted in the public mind, that the wanted man had a, quote, foul odour, unquote, as one newspaper put it, that he looked exactly like the photographs of the bust, the made-up bust, and that he had an accent. Repetition gave these impressions the resonance of absolute truth. Pity they were so wrong. This week and every week, Life and Crimes is brought to you by subscribers of The Herald Sun. If you like the podcast and want to support it, go to heraldsun.com.au forward slash Andrew Rule and click on any article to begin. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts.